Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject. Theodore John Kaczynski Jr., also known as the Unabomber. Let's continue with our story about Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber. Because a fatality finally occurred, the FBI would not have sole jurisdiction in the ensuing investigation. The Homicide Division of the Sacramento Police Department also became involved, but immediately found the situation frustrating. Despite their belief that the more publicity about the bomber that was released to the public, the better, the Sacramento police were told that no, the FBI did not want to alert the Unabomber to the fact that they knew of his existence. The local police felt that the FBI was more concerned with the fact that after 10 years of bombings, the FBI had no idea who the perpetrator was. The Bureau's explanation was illogical in that by stamping FC on each bomb, the killer was trying to let them know that he was responsible for numerous attacks. This would not be the first FBI investigation that was driven as much by public relations as it was by criminal investigation. Within weeks, Sacramento Homicide found themselves being excluded from meetings and ignored. Both they and the FBI got nowhere in trying to even begin to figure out who killed Hugh Scruton. Fourteen months later, on the morning of February 20th, 1987, a female secretary whose name has never been released by law enforcement, working at CAAMS Incorporated, a Salt Lake City retail computer sales and service business, was absentmindedly staring out of the window that looked onto the rear parking lot behind the store. Suddenly she saw a man wearing a hooded sweatshirt and aviator sunglasses walk onto the lot kneel down and take a wooden object resembling construction debris out of a laundry bag and place it on the pavement next to her parked car. The item looked like pieces of wood nailed together with some of the nails protruding from the surface of the object. Despite seeing her looking at him through one of the store's rear windows, the man looked directly at her and then calmly stood up and walked away. The woman even mentioned him to a co-worker and wondered if he was trying to flatten someone's tire. A ringing phone then distracted her, and she quickly forgot about the strange occurrence. Later that morning, at 10.30, the store owner, Gary Wright, pulled his truck into the lot after returning from a service call. He immediately noticed the wooden hazard and did not want anyone to puncture a tire running over it. Wright picked up the item, set to detonate with any movement. It exploded. Wright's mother, also a store employee, actually witnessed the event. Her son was sent at least 12 feet in the air backward, shrapnel lodging in his throat, face, arms, and legs, and injuring his left hand severely. Later, Wright said that he recalled looking at himself and thinking he looked like a porcupine. He would survive, although he did suffer permanent damage to his hand. The most distinct aspect of this particular attack was that, for the first time, an eyewitness observed the Unabomber in the act.
an FBI sketch artist immediately put together a composite that was deemed unsatisfactory. Then a freelance artist was hired to try again. Both of these sketches were only used on a local Sacramento and very limited national basis. The FBI still insisting on not publicizing a potential serial bomber. The secretary also continually maintained that the two original sketches did not really resemble the man she saw. It would not be until 1994 when public awareness was already rampant and the FBI still no closer to solving the case and knowing that the sketches they had were inaccurate that a third sketch was developed and released, this time the much more familiar composite which became a popular culture icon. This rendition by veteran criminal sketch artist Gene Boylan featured a hooded, grim-looking man with curly hair, a strong chin, and very large aviator sunglasses. Her Unabomber would quickly become ubiquitous and greatly add to the criminal's mystique. For more than six years, Kaczynski suspended his terror campaign and did not initiate any more attacks. Speculation then and today is that he was spooked by an interaction with an eyewitness and decided to lay low. Clearly, law enforcement still had little to actually find him or his location. But Kaczynski continued to work on his devices, experimenting continually to perfect even more lethal components. Certainly there was no lessening of his anger and resentment. Now he seemed to vent his hostility in matters involving his neighbors and his family. Interestingly enough, David Kaczynski initially emulated his brother by relocating to an even more isolated, climatically forbidding area, the Terlingua Desert in southwest Texas, only 60 miles north from the Mexican border. He lived in a literal hole he dug in the ground while constructing a cabin on the outskirts of Big Bend National Park. He also corresponded with his brother, and they remained on at least reasonable terms until a major schism fractured this connection. Beginning in high school, David had known and actually had a romantically obsessive but unrequited relationship with a woman named Linda Patrick. Eventually, she got divorced, and David began corresponding with her in earnest. At the same time, he became disenchanted with his desert outpost, and by the late 80s, he and Linda decided to live together and ultimately marry. This development enraged Ted Kaczynski, who had never met Linda, but had covertly read letters exchanged between the couple as far back as when David lived in Great Falls. He told his brother that he was making a mistake, that Linda was manipulative and domineering and even evil. Obviously, the fact that his brother had found someone and become romantically involved with them, especially someone he was so passionate about, must have also raised feelings of envy and frustration. When his brother asked him to be his best man at his July 1990 wedding, Ted did not even respond. David and Linda then essentially relocated back to Schenectady, New York, where she taught philosophy at Union College, and he worked with troubled children and runaways. Not only did Ted not attend the wedding or even acknowledge it, he instructed his brother that he would not even read any further correspondence unless David drew a red line under the stamp on the envelope as a signal that the letter contained urgent information. That methodology was tested only a few months later when Ted received an envelope from his brother with the stamp so underlined. In it, David explained that their father, a lifelong pipe smoker, had terminal lung cancer Ted did respond, but only to commend his brother for an appropriate use of their new stamp underlining process. Only a month later, Ted Sr., after careful consideration, 
committed suicide with his 22 caliber hunting rifle. David's subsequent letter informing Ted of this development and request to attend the memorial in Chicago was ignored entirely. For several months, there was a succession of demands to completely cut off any contact, alternating with pleas for money from Ted Sr.'s estate. As an indication of Wanda Kaczynski's ambivalence and torment over her son's behavior and outlook, she initially refused to give him any part of the estate but ultimately sent him $7,000, a considerable sum of money for Ted, who once told one of his neighbors that he subsisted on $200 annually. Although Ted would routinely insist that his family stop contacting him and that he wished to cut off any contact, he would periodically follow up these outbursts with letters to David requesting loans. His brother almost always responded with checks in the neighborhood of one to $2,000. From the early 90s until his arrest, Kaczynski's family provided him with approximately $16,000, unwittingly furnishing the financial means for Ted to continue his terror campaign. By the late 80s, Kaczynski's interactions with his neighbors and acquaintances indicated that he was slowly but visibly degrading both physically and mentally. Chris Waits experienced a change in Kaczynski's attitude when he began a relationship with Linda, his eventual wife. Ted still continued to interact with Waits personally, as Waits had given him permission to enter his vast McClellan Gulch property, access that proved crucial to Kaczynski's continued bombing campaign. But he refused to ever acknowledge Linda, deliberately refusing to speak or interact with her, even when the two of them were next to each other at the local grocery store. Usually quiet and polite while passing by Waits' home on his bicycle, Waits eventually heard Kaczynski angrily and loudly cursing out his dogs when he didn't know that Waits was nearby. During Kaczynski's residence in Lincoln, six of Waits' dogs would be poisoned. One would die of injuries sustained in its rectum inflicted by a sharp knife or spear, and another died after being shot with a 22 caliber bullet in the same physical area. The Gehring family also lost a dog that a vet determined to be poisoned with strychnine. Kaczynski hated and feared dogs who all uniformly reacted negatively and vociferously to his presence, alerting any neighbors to his whereabouts long before he became visible on his bicycle. That alone might have been the cause of Kaczynski's animus towards these animals, disliking any agent that impinged on his ability to act covertly. Despite numerous acts of vandalism that occurred involving vehicles, bulldozers, trucks, and even Butch Garing's sawmill, which had sand poured into it, the locals dismissed any idea that Teddy the Hermit was involved. By 1990, Jamie Garing, Butch's daughter, even as a 10-year-old, understood that something was very wrong with Ted. Initially, he looked a little disheveled, like an absent-minded professor, but over time his appearance became much more disturbing, with dirt perpetually on his face and under his nails, his clothing literally disintegrating, and his feet so filthy she couldn't tell whether he was barefoot or had shoes on. His demeanor was much more erratic and perpetually agitated. Now, whenever she was alone and he came to the door to ask what time and day it was, she ran and hid in a closet until he left. On June 22, 1993, Dr. Charles Epstein, a geneticist and biochemist, sat in his kitchen in Tiburon, California, going through the mail. Recently profiled in the New York Times, he was not at all surprised by a larger-than-typical padded envelope that was included in the stack of letters he now routinely received. 
with a return address from a professor at Sacramento State and numerous 29-cent stamps, Epstein might have shrugged before attempting to open the parcel. When he did, it exploded, fracturing his right arm, severing three fingers, and sending shrapnel into his upper body. Although he was rushed to the hospital and spent almost five hours in surgery, he survived. Only two days later, at 8 a.m., a Yale University professor, Dr. David Galunter, entered his fifth-floor office in the school's computer science department. Out of town for several days, he immediately turned his attention to the mail on his desk, which included a parcel in the shape of a box. It featured a return address from a computer science professor at Cal State Sacramento, but was ordinary-looking otherwise. When he unwrapped it, the package, which contained a redwood box that enclosed a six-inch copper pipe bomb, detonated. Glunter's face, hands, and chest all received cuts and wounds from shrapnel, but it was his right eye that was most seriously damaged. The explosion and ensuing flame was so severe that it triggered both the building's fire alarm and automatic sprinkler system. Glunter himself was able to stagger to the University Health Service location. From there, he was rushed to Yale New Haven Hospital in critical condition. Damage to his eyesight would affect the professor's aptitude for painting. He was an accomplished and gifted artist and also had recently been published in several publications, including the New York Times. Clearly, the Unabomber was back. Any doubts about that were undermined when a letter was received by an editor at the New York Times that began with a sentence, We are an anarchist group calling ourselves F.C., it also contained a nine-digit number, similar to a social security number, that the correspondent maintained should be used to ascertain the legitimacy of any future missives. For the first time, other than letters meant to trick victims into opening his packages, the Unabomber was now attempting to communicate directly with the general public. With FBI permission and encouragement, the New York Times published the entire six-sentence letter, essentially a promise to communicate in greater detail in the future. Realizing that their refusal to publicly acknowledge a serial bomber was not working, the FBI then changed course and sent a computer-generated communication to all colleges and universities, warning them to be aware of the possibility of the receipt of an explosive device. The FBI also reconvened its Unabomber task force. The unit's activity greatly reduced, with some at the agency even calling for the Unabomber investigation shutdown after six-plus years of fundamental inactivity. But other than aggressively re-interviewing some of the individuals whose return addresses were on the Unabomber packages and turning the Cal State Sacramento campus upside down when the graffiti F.C. inexplicably turned up at several locations on the campus, the Bureau was not any closer to even remotely knowing the source of these devices. On December 10, 1994, 50-year-old PR executive Thomas Mosser sat at the kitchen table of his suburban North Caldwell, New Jersey home. It was a Saturday morning, and Mosser was waiting for his wife and children to get ready to go out Christmas shopping as the holiday approached. He killed some time going through the mail until he got to a package addressed to him with a return address from a professor at San Francisco State University. The package was addressed in care of Burson Marsteller, a firm that Mosser left nine months earlier. His former employer's name misspelled on the package. An advertising agency professional, Mosser had three decades of public relations-related experience 
and his recent promotion to executive VP and general manager at Young and Rubicam only nine days earlier was announced in the Wall Street Journal and New York Times. Unfortunately, the only other recent mention of Burson Marsteller appeared in the environmentally oriented publication Earth First, which erroneously claimed that the firm worked on Exxon's crisis management campaign after the horrendous Exxon Valdez oil spill. Although Mosser did not know such a professor at San Francisco State, as this was a fictitious name, and despite the oddly excessive number of at least 60 stamps on the parcel, he began to open the package. Momentarily, it exploded with remarkable force, gouging a two-foot hole in the kitchen counter. Unfortunately, Kaczynski's experimentation with the chemical mixtures of explosives and the inclusion of especially deadly shrapnel consisting of razors and one-inch paneling nails proved to greatly increase the power of this particular weapon. Mosser was decapitated and died instantly. His screaming wife and one daughter ran out of the damaged, smoke-filled house in a hysterical, fruitless search for help. On April 19, 1994, a rented truck parked next to the Oklahoma City Alfred P. Murrah Federal Building exploded, killing 168 people. Up to that point, the worst terrorist attack in U.S. history. This incident seemed to trigger something in Kaczynski, perhaps the $2 million reward the FBI designated for the capture of those who perpetrated the Oklahoma City incident, double what they were offering for the Unabomber, considered a personal affront. Immediately, he mailed four letters to the New York Times, to his victim, Dr. David Galerntor, and two letters to Nobel laureates, Philip Sharp and Richard Roberts, who shared the Nobel for Medicine in 1993. The latter two letters were threats and were immediately turned over to the FBI. The letter to Galerntor left no doubt that whoever was responsible for the doctor's injury was deeply disturbed and viciously cruel. It began, Dr. Galerntor, people with advanced degrees aren't as smart as they think they are. If you had had any brains, you would have realized that there are a lot of people out there who resent bitterly the way techno-nerds like you are changing the world, and you wouldn't have been dumb enough to open an unexpected package from an unknown source. The letter to the New York Times was not opened by the secretary for editor Warren Hogue. She remembered the unusual lettering from a manual typewriter. It was turned over to the FBI. It was quite long and included a rambling justification for Kaczynski's terror campaign, centering around a desire to harm and kill those responsible for furthering technological advances that eventually would completely control and manipulate human beings. It also underlined the Unabomber's mastery of devices that would definitely kill their victims, as well as a future goal of destroying large buildings. But Kaczynski also offered a possible alternative that would allow him to stop killing people. He demanded that his, quote, long article between 29 and 37,000 words, unquote, be published in a periodical of significant stature, like the New York Times, Time, or Newsweek. If this occurred, he promised to stop implementing his explosive devices. This offer was punctuated with more behavior that seemed to occur as a result of the Oklahoma City incident. On April 24, 1995, a package arrived at the California Forestry Association in Sacramento, California. The association was essentially a lobbying arm of the state's timber industry. The package was addressed to William Dennison, president of the Timber Association of California, but Dennison was no longer the president, 
having left a year earlier. The name of the organization also recently changed. But it did have the correct street address and was wrapped in brown wrapping paper secured with reinforced tape. 47-year-old Gilbert Murray was the new president, and when an assistant mentioned the misaddressed package, he decided to open it to see if it was relevant business. The package was postmarked from Oakland, the return address of furniture store. His first attempt while in the outer lobby failed when he couldn't get the tape off, so he requested a pair of scissors and returned to his office. As she closed the door and sat at her desk, the assistant got a glimpse of Murray peeling the tape off of the package. In a matter of seconds, a massive explosion ensued. It ripped several doors off of their hinges, destroyed furniture, and sent flame and black smoke throughout the building. Most of the staff of the Forestry Association, protected by closed doors, escaped serious injury. But the force of the blast literally obliterated Gilbert Murray his remains consisting of body parts that were scattered around his office. They were removed in separate plastic bags. All of the rest of the building's occupants evacuated, the explosion so forceful it knocked out the building's electricity. A Sacramento Fire Department outpost responded from right across the street, the bomb so loud it was audible at the state capitol building four blocks away. Although the FBI had a database of suspects that numbered over 50,000 entries, Kaczynski's name was not contained in it. Two months later, a reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle received a letter, including the identifier FC and two digits of the nine-digit number previously cited, threatening to blow up an airliner leaving Los Angeles's LAX in a matter of days. It contained a return address from an individual supposedly named Frederick Benjamin Isaac Wood, on Wood Street, Woodlake, California, the first three names an acronym for the FBI. Kaczynski was clearly taunting the Bureau. In previous letters, he alluded to the FBI as a, quote, joke, unquote, and, quote, incompetent, unquote. Wood also seemed to fascinate the killer as he almost always made references to the substance in his aliases, fake addresses, attacked an agency responsible for cutting down forests, and lovingly sanded and polished his redwood boxes that contained his explosive devices, a behavior that absolutely ensured fingerprint removal. The FBI and Postal Inspection Service could only augment their investigation by warning airports and using bomb-sniffing dogs at all transportation locales throughout California. Airmail was shut down temporarily as well. The Times got another letter on June 29th backtracking on the airliner threat while into the publishing void stepped Bob Guccione, the publisher of Penthouse Magazine, who publicly stated that he was willing to print the Unabomber manifesto. At the end of June, he got a response that indicated that the Unabomber was willing to publish there if the Times et al. refused, but still reserved the right to carry out one more attack as he did not consider Penthouse as prestigious a venue as the other high-profile periodicals. This was a somewhat ingenious way to add more pressure to the other outlets. If they refused, and another similarly devastating bomb killed more people, wouldn't they at least partially bear some responsibility? It was a deeply troubling conflict between journalistic ethics and public safety, with numerous additionally complicated ethical aspects. What would stop other terrorists from making similar demands? What if the bomber just kept killing people even after the manifesto is printed? The Unabomber's suddenly communicative mentality only intensified, 
He sent a copy of his manifesto along with a personal letter to Tom Tyler, a professor of social psychology at Cal Berkeley. Tyler had recently been quoted concerning behavior related to the Oklahoma City incident, and the Unabomber requested that the professor read his manifesto while pondering certain philosophical questions included in the letter. He also apologized for the poor carbon copies, stating that accessing a public copying machine while wearing thick gloves might draw attention. The professor eventually responded in the pages of the San Francisco Chronicle. Subsequently, the Times and Post both quickly stated that they were seriously considering publishing the manifesto. Behind the scenes, they both weighed the ethical aspects of the situation and conferred with the FBI, who were urging the papers to publish the manifesto in its entirety. While they would not have wanted to admit this publicly, the FBI had made no progress on its investigation and felt that publication might allow someone in the general public to recognize the writing style or rhetoric of the author. Chris Roney, the head of the FBI's explosive unit, was even blunter, telling Newsweek in mid-1995 that he didn't, quote, hold out any hope that we'd ever catch the Unabomber, unquote. And so on September 19, 1995, as an insert to 850,000 copies of the Washington Post, the manifesto appeared in print, the $40,000 cost of additional printing shared by the Post and New York Times. Ironically, it also appeared simultaneously on the Internet via Time Warner's Pathfinder web portal. The following day, two dailies in the Oakland area also published the work in its entirety. Other papers quickly followed suit. In Schenectady, in mid-1995, David Kaczynski was now the, the assistant director of the Equinox Youth Shelter, an institution that catered to teenagers. In the summer of 1995, with the high profile of the Unabomber pervading popular media, his wife began suggesting that Ted might have something to do with the bombings. She read that the FBI maintained that the Unabomber grew up in Chicago, spent time in Berkeley, and had at least recently traveled to Salt Lake City. Linda Patrick had never met Ted, but was aware of his extreme animosity towards her, had read his correspondence with David, and had lengthy conversations with her husband, attempting to convince him that Ted was mentally ill. At first, he dismissed the notion, but, as much out of curiosity, he eventually got a hold of the manifesto to see if it resonated in any way. At the same time, Linda got a copy of the initial portion of the manifesto online, as the Union College Library's printed copies had been stolen. After the pair read even a small part of the screed, they were both alarmed. Subsequently, unable to dismiss Ted as the perpetrator of these acts, David then went back and documented when he had sent Ted money for loans. It turned out that the devices that killed Thomas Mosser and Gilbert Murray were sent within one month and three months, respectively, from when checks were sent to Ted. Angry and concerned that he had unwittingly sponsored Ted's violent behavior, David wrote to his brother and asked if he could come for a visit. Ted did respond, but he unequivocally told him that he did not ever want to hear from him again. Because he had saved much of his brother's correspondence, Ted had plenty of material to compare with the manifesto. He began to notice singular phrasing and misspellings that appeared in both of the letters and the manifesto. Some whole paragraphs were practically identical tirades conveying the same fundamental concepts about technology, corporations, and nature. But there were dissimilarities as well, the Unabomber railing against leftists, a conviction that David had never personally encountered within his brother. 
While his wife suggested approaching the FBI, David believed that he couldn't risk implicating his brother without much more solid information. He decided to hire an acquaintance of his wife, a private investigator named Susan Swanson, to see what she could ascertain. She, in turn, sent writing samples to noted former FBI profiler and security consultant Clifford Van Zant, who employed two separate analyses of the manifesto and recent letters without any specific identifiers. Van Zant stated that he thought there was a 60% chance the letters and manifesto were composed by the same person. The other unit, made up of academics in the communications field, set the number at an 80% likelihood. David's own further personal analysis revealed even more verbal and conceptual commonalities that both brothers personally discussed with each other. By the end of January 1996, he made up his mind to retain a lawyer to help approach the federal government in a manner that was effective. The individual selected for this purpose, Anthony Busegli, was ranked as one of the top 50 D.C. attorneys by the Washingtonian magazine. Initially approached by Swanson, he then spoke at length with David Kaczynski, coming to the conclusion that at the very least, these allegations were worthy of serious consideration. But Busegli did not want to contact the Unabomber task force directly. With thousands of leads, the information might not have been taken seriously, or even worse, the FBI might quickly decide to approach Kaczynski directly, precipitating a violent and potentially fatal outcome, much like what happened at Ruby Ridge. In the meantime, David Kaczynski's mother became ill, and when David went to Chicago to help her move out of her house, he found a copy of a 1971 essay written by Ted that was strikingly similar to the subsequent manifesto. He FedExed that to Busegli, who forwarded it to a longtime contact at the FBI, Molly Flynn, someone he trusted to behave professionally. Flynn internally forwarded this new essay and other info to the Unabomber task force working out of San Francisco, who concluded that the lead was worth pursuing. After some negotiation over keeping David Kaczynski's name and role confidential, on February 14, 1996, the FBI began interviewing David and Linda Patrick extensively. Unfortunately, during this process, it was necessary for David to inform his mother that he believed that Ted was the Unabomber and the FBI was pursuing an investigation. She was not as certain as David, but believed that it was necessary to cooperate, and she provided additional letters, writings, and information from and about Ted. After an examination by FBI analyst and special profiler James Fitzgerald concluded that the Unabomber and Ted Kaczynski were most likely the same person, the process of obtaining a search warrant and carrying out the service of this warrant in Lincoln, Montana, began. Additionally, Ted had mistakenly licked stamps he applied to the envelope containing his correspondence with Berkeley's Professor Tyler. Although DNA analysis was not as precise as today's technology, a sample of the DNA from the stamps were matched to a sample from David, at least a process that did not rule Ted out. The infiltration of Lincoln began at the end of February and continued steadily through the month of March. The townspeople instantly became aware that something was up. There were too many brand new government issue cars on back roads, too many strangers asking questions at the library, grocery stores, and elsewhere. But they never made a connection to Ted, thinking that this investigative presence had something to do with the current standoff between Idaho militiamen, or maybe these strangers weren't government-related at all. 
but involved in surreptitiously finding out more about recently discovered gold and mineral deposits found in Lincoln's vicinity. Ted himself had not been seen by anyone for months. The Gehrings speculated that he might even have died over the winter, but they made no attempt to approach his cabin or interact with him. By now, Butch Gehring suspected that it was Ted who had sabotaged his sawmill, and the two had also had a verbal altercation when Butch was using a herbicide on his land, and Ted emerged from his cabin, gesticulating wildly and insisting that his neighbor stop immediately. Gehring essentially told him to buzz off, which infuriated Ted even more. Their relationship had essentially ended after that. But Butch Goering became the FBI's most important asset in finally apprehending Ted Kaczynski. The FBI knew that they could never get anywhere near Ted's cabin without the neighbors observing them. So they decided to approach Goering through local law enforcement and finally took him into their confidence, although they did not specifically mention the Unabomber, just that Ted was suspected of threatening some college professors. Eventually they would tell Goering the truth and even get him to videotape the vicinity of Ted's cabin. But he still didn't really think that somebody as poor and decrepit-looking as Ted could really be the Unabomber. As FBI surveillance was slowly falling into place, it was clear from information they had received that storming the cabin was not a good idea. They hoped to detain Ted outside of his shack, perhaps when he made a run into town for groceries, and they were willing to be patient. But in early April, the FBI was informed by CBS News that they knew of the current investigation— and even after agreeing to hold off on presenting the story, it seemed as if their competitors at CNN and ABC had also gotten similar information from a leak within the Bureau. CBS News agreed to hold off until noon on April 3rd on reporting information about the investigation. Luckily, the FBI had already recruited Jerry Burns, a local law enforcement official with the U.S. Forest Service. Hastily, the Bureau put together a plan in which Burns and two other FBI agents, Max Noel and Tom McDaniel, disguised as mining company officials, would approach Ted's cabin ostensibly to verify exact boundary lines for Ted's property. One of the last, albeit unpleasant, conversations that Butch Gehring had with Ted was notifying him that he had leased mineral rights from the Gehring property to a Colorado mining firm. This, of course, enraged Ted, but there was nothing he could do about it. At about 11 a.m., with time running out, the trio cautiously walked onto Kaczynski's property, hoping the roost would get him out of the cabin. Ted, Ted, are you home? Burns yelled, not even sure if Kaczynski was even inside. Suddenly, Teddy the Hermit opened the door slightly and peered out. Later, Burns said he looked awful, with bloodshot eyes and frail, most likely having very little to eat over the winter. Ted, we're trying to find this exact property line right here. Can you show us where it is? Kaczynski had a habit of not letting strangers inside his cabin, usually stepping outside if necessary and shutting the door behind him. This time he did not even fully emerge, but hesitated with the door open while Burns distracted him with conversation. The Forest Service agent was close enough to grab him by the wrist, and after a brief struggle, all three men were able to get Kaczynski into handcuffs. He was immediately conveyed to a nearby rented cabin and, although talkative, refused to answer any questions about the Unabomber case. Approximately an hour later, CBS broke into regular programming, announcing an arrest of the, quote, best suspect, unquote, in the Unabomber investigation. 
The next day, Attorney General Janet Reno held a press conference disclosing only that the suspect would be charged in federal district court with illegally possessing a destructive device. She refused to even acknowledge that the suspect was the Unabomber. On the ground in Montana, the FBI very quickly determined that Ted's cabin was filled with incriminating items and materials, including chemicals and substances that combined could serve no other purpose other than bomb making. There were also notebooks containing diagrams of his devices with extensively detailed notes. Wary of a booby trap or even some mechanism to trigger a massive explosion, the FBI demolition unit began to meticulously dig through the boxes, containers, and tools that were everywhere in the cabin, x-raying every item before it was examined. Before the end of the first day's investigation, a wrapped package that seemed to contain a fully operational explosive device encased in Kaczynski's customized wooden container was located under what served as Ted's bed. It would take nine days to fully search and compile a mountain of evidence, including an older manual typewriter, gray hooded sweatshirt, guns, including a handmade pistol and rifles, shoes with a second pair of different size soles attached, and additional incriminating notebooks. Ted Kaczynski was indicted by a grand jury in June of 1996 on 10 counts concerning four of the bombings, including the fatal bombings of Hugh Scruton, Tom Mosser, and Gilbert Murray. Because these bombs either exploded in or were sent from Sacramento, California, Ted was transported to Sacramento, where he would stand trial after being pronounced mentally fit. If convicted, Kaczynski was potentially subject to the death penalty, an outcome that his two public defenders were desperate to avoid. In early January of 1988, when they entered an insanity plea on his behalf, he dismissed them and maintained that he wanted to hire a different attorney and ultimately insisted that he be able to defend himself. When this was denied by the trial judge, who would only accept a psychiatric defense, Kaczynski allegedly unsuccessfully attempted to hang himself in his jail cell. Only hours before the proceeding was about to start, on January 22nd, Kaczynski agreed to a deal to plead guilty, the only stipulation that he would not receive the death penalty. The federal government accepted his plea deal. Part of the prosecution's willingness to accept such a plea revolved around what they knew would be a circus-like trial if Ted had his way. He had insisted that he be referred to by his lawyers as Dr. Kaczynski, and even from the time of arrest, conducted himself as a jailhouse lawyer who would ridicule all concerned at every opportunity. This mentality evidenced itself when Ted attempted to withdraw his guilty plea, claiming it was coerced by the trial judge. Presiding Judge Garland Burrell rejected this motion, and on May 4, 1998, Burrell sentenced him to essentially four life terms plus 30 years without the possibility of parole. During the sentencing hearing, Kaczynski ignored the passionately acrimonious comments of the relatives of the dead and some of the injured victims themselves. In his own brief statement, Kaczynski showed no remorse blaming the government for distorting facts about him and the case for purely political motives, and that he had no further comment presently, but would publicly comment later, ostensibly to contradict prevailing official and public opinion. In 2000, Kaczynski's handwritten appeal concerning his right to withdraw his guilty plea was rejected by the Federal Court of Appeals. In 2002, the Supreme Court refused to hear his case, ending any judicial process concerning his sentence. 
Upon his guilty plea, he was transported to the notorious Supermax prison in Florence, Colorado. This specially designed facility contains 7 by 12 foot units constructed entirely of cement. Prisoners are confined to their cells 23 hours a day and can only exercise outdoors in individual cage-like cells for one hour a day. A skylight provides the only natural illumination and there's no visibility of any natural or physical environment. Predictably, Ted Kaczynski, unlike most of his Florence counterparts, including Timothy McVeigh, Ramsey Youssef, Eric Rudolph, shoe bomber Richard Reed, and Zacharias Musawi, almost seemed to flourish in his new environment. His cell is small but still larger than the freezing, soot-filled shack that was home for 25 years. He has published several book-length collections of essays and commentary with the aid of University of Michigan at Dearborn philosophy professor David Skirbina. His correspondence with over 400 individuals and materials relevant to his case was donated to the University of Michigan and is archived in a special collection. Unlike the photographs at the time of his arrest, current official mugshots depict him as well-groomed with a pleasant demeanor. He seems to enjoy a wry sense of humor, responding to a questionnaire from his alma mater, Harvard, concerning his 50th reunion. He listed his occupation as, quote, prisoner, unquote, and under the category of awards, he wrote, quote, eight life sentences issued by the United States District Court for the Eastern District of California, 1998, unquote. And among published works listed his 2010 collection of writings entitled Technological Slavery. Recently, most likely due to health reasons, it was announced in December of 2021 that Ted Kaczynski had been transferred to the Federal Medical Center at Butner, North Carolina, the complex that once housed Bernie Madoff. Unfortunately for David Kaczynski, his deal with the FBI to keep his involvement with his brother's arrest confidential quickly unraveled. His role as essentially the person who turned his brother in became widely publicized, as well as his passionate opposition to the death penalty, especially in the case of his brother. Ted Kaczynski never reconciled with his mother, who died in 2011, or his brother. Despite their frequent attendance at his legal proceedings in Sacramento, he refused to even acknowledge their presence. In fact, he stated that his brother's real motive was jealousy because he could never live down that Ted was more intelligent than he was. Over the years, while he has continued to produce complicated philosophical essays about technology and its negative effect on mankind, he has repeatedly stated that he never cared about the environment and was consumed by one overriding motivation. I believe in nothing, Kaczynski wrote while in the woods near Lincoln. I don't even believe in the cult of nature worshippers or wilderness worshippers. I am perfectly ready to litter in parts of the woods that are of no use to me. I often throw cans in logged over areas. My motive for doing what I am doing is simply personal revenge. Was Ted Kaczynski ever concerned about technology's increasing grip on society, or was he instead merely another loner intent on achieving notoriety through highly publicized criminal behavior? The answer to that question might be supplied by Jamie Gehring, who Ted knew as a little girl when he lived in Montana. In 2018, decades after they had interacted, she sent him a long letter with numerous questions about his behavior, his attitudes, and her own feelings about him and what he did. He eventually replied from his cell at Supermax with a brief note thanking her for the letter, but telling her that he couldn't write much at the present as he was, quote, burdened with more work than I can handle. 
he encouraged her to acquire and read two of his books, which he cited by title and added that they were readily available on Amazon.com. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Ted Kaczynski. Much of the information for this podcast came from the books Every Last Tie by David Kaczynski, Unabomber, A Desire to Kill by Robert Graysmith, Unabomber, The Secret Life of Ted Kaczynski by Chris Waits, Harvard and the Unabomber by Alston Chase, and Madman in the Woods by Jamie Gehring. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.